I'm Toby Haydock, and it was all going so well. <laughs> this was a disaster. Uh, I knew one of uh, the two chaps I'm interviewing today already, and I knew he was happy to take part. And so, uh, it was rather casually, perhaps more casually than usual, that I arrived at, inevitably, the pub. They'd started without me, that was okay, and after a preamble I flourished my recording machine, which had been in my bag and had accidentally been switched on. So there was one bar of battery left. But, as lots of people on the internet moan about the quality, uh, I thought I, I would persevere with this machine rather than use the inferior iPhone. So this gentleman talked at length about his background and the pilot of Doctor Who that he worked on and the very first story, An Unearthly Child. And then the machine died. No matter. I had the stuff recorded and out came the iPhone as backup, which for the first time ever, the first and only time, I hadn't had recording the conversation concurrently. Um, the only time I haven't done that. And so, of course... Only when I got home did I discover that the first session, for some reason, had registered on the machine, but hadn't recorded. No material. So, for the first time, we have a partially missing episode of Toby Hiddoke's Who's Round Which, when reconstructed using Telesnap soundtracks and composite photographic material in 20 years, will reveal a, as yet, lost chat about mixing the titles to the pilot uh, and the first story, of course. But, you know, the pilot's... Not actually on my list because it wasn't broadcast and Warris Hussain did An Unearthly Child. So uh, it hasn't dented who's round too much apart from it would have been nice to have. Anyway, sorry. So we start our chat partway through the conversation, uh, which is also missing, therefore, the rather key reveal that my victim is Clive Doig. And the reason that I'm talking to him about Doctor Who is because he vision mixed most of the first two years of the show, plus the odd dragon that he doesn't remember. We'll be all right because I've got this. I've got my back up. So, um, you vision mixed the very first appearance of the Daleks. No, I believe, was it Christopher Barry who... Yeah, Christopher um, Barry and Richard Martin shared it. Yeah. Uh, I know that when Richard came on, there was all sorts of um, hiatuses in the fact that um, there's a forest um, where the Thals, is it, and the... Were the Thals the ones with the costumes with the holes in it? Yeah. Um, which was okay for the lads, but rather nice for the young young actresses who were wearing foul costumes. We all got very excited about that. Um, but when Richard came to do it, he wanted to shoot out of the forest at the oncoming uh, foursome of um, Doctor Who and his um, companions coming approaching. And uh, this was very difficult to do. I eventually became quite good friends with Richard and, and his lovely wife Suzanne Neve and I think he was a very competent director eventually but those, that very first episode was trauma personified I can tell you. Vision Mixers, when I stopped being a vision mixer and went into directing 
that is when Vision Mixer started getting credits, and they've had credits ever since. So the only credit I ever got was on a, um, a, I think, a, an election broadcast or something. And do you, there was there was one two-part story in that first year set entirely within the TARDIS that was directed by Richard Martin and Frank Cox. And yes. as it's only got the TARDIS crew in it, um, I'm sort of relying on you to remember something about it. <laughs> do you know, I have no recollection whatsoever. You, you know, can't I... recall two weeks out of your life 50 years ago. No, Are you I... crazy? <laughs> I do know that, that there was, because it's very easy and much cheaper to do a to be doing it, um, and I remember Frank Cox, very tall, is he still alive? Yeah. Oh good, um, send him my love. Uh, <coughs> I'm going to have to now. Yeah, you want to. Um, and I presume I worked on that, but I can't remember anything about it. But I know you do remember uh, the next story, which wasn't cheap and cheerful, it was big and sumptuous, and it was Marco Polo. Marco Polo, which I think Warris Hussain, um, yeah. who who directed the very first series, um, directed. I remember one story in Marco Polo which sticks out um, more than anything else. And that was when they came to... Um, they came to the Kublai Khan's palace, I think in episode three or four. And It would have been, uh, it would have been six, six, oh, six, 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 yeah. Oh, they went to the Golden Palace, didn't they? They went to a number of different <laughs> they took, Yeah, they went to a number of places before they got to Kublai Khan. The big one, and um, it, I, I remember that there were columns down either side. These were some of them were brailed off um, for safety reasons. You'd brail off to lighting um, lighting bars, the tops of the columns, and a camera which was uh, called a, a motorized Vinton was going up the centre, following Doctor Who and the companions. Um, to see the Kublai Khan. Who played the Kublai Khan? Martin Miller. Martin Miller, fine, that's lovely. Um, of course, with Marco Polo, who was Mark, Mark Eden. Eden. Yeah. Um, <coughs> walking up the central aisle with lots of extras down the sides um, to, meet, to first meet um, the Kublai Khan. Now, um, camera one was on a motorised Vinton following them up... Uh, the kind of avenue of columns. And camera two, who was a um, uh, operated by a man called Doug Douglas Routledge, who was well known for muttering throughout his operating his camera. He muttered a lot, and lots of people used to have to tell him, directors and sound supervisors, could you stop talking to yourself, Douglas? <laughs> Um, and you could hear Douglas when we were going to come to camera two going, I'm just changing lens or whatever he was doing. Um, and unfortunately, he got his camera pedestal um, into crab rather than steer. Now, that's very technical, but it does mean that he couldn't manoeuvre his pedestal to the next position marked on the plan where he would get a close-up of the Kublai Khan from the side. In doing so, in trying to move to the next position, he knocked in to a column, one of these static columns. This column happened not to be brailed off, happened to be just standing there, and he knocked it over. 
and it crashed down in between uh, camera one and the procession that was going up to see the Kublai Khan. Behind them, luckily, not and didn't actually kill anybody, which was quite lucky. Um, it crashed down, it brought down another column, and nobody knew about this, because we cut to camera one, camera one then used its zoom, it was on a zoom, I believe, in that time, but I've got to know about this, it might not have done... I think it probably carried on tracking. Uh, we couldn't take camera two's position because now Douglas was muttering in the corner looking, <laughs> at, looking at the floor and had missed about four or five shots. And nobody knew anything about it because we'd cut round the fact that um, pillars had crashed out of the set a set of basically fallen to pieces behind the camera shot, and we went through the whole of the um, the whole of that scene. With the nation none the wiser. With the nation none the wiser. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the other uh, there was in that series, and there was one called The Censorites that was directed by Mervyn Pinfield that had bearded monsters with plated feet, and there was also The Reign of Terror, which was the French Revolution, directed by a chap called Henrik Hirsch who then ah. we don't really know an awful lot about, other than that he couldn't really cope. No, certainly Henrik Hirsch. Did he, did he actually direct them all? Because I remember there was great difficulty with Henrik. Um, is he still alive? He's, he? he's not, we don't think. Um, we think we pretty much I, narrowed him down. Um, the the mystery is that he, he might not have directed episode three of that. Um, paperwork suggests it might have been John Gorry. John Gorry doesn't remember... So nobody quite knows what happened with Henrik. John Gorry, who I worked a lot with on other programmes as a visual mixer, um, and certainly worked with him on... That was the first time I probably worked with John Gorry. And he did um, The Keys of Marinus as well, which was... Uh, mm, yeah. uh, Henrik Hirsch, he, he was a foreign gentleman, I believe. Yeah, he was Hungarian, um, I think. Yes, Hungarian, that's correct. Um, now, I've worked with people like Rudolf Cartier, and um, he could sometimes um, make himself um, um, non-explicit in Austrian or whatever he... Uh, German, whatever he spoke, um, and rule the roost. But Henrik Hirsch really couldn't make himself understood of what he wanted at all. And I know there were very, very difficult episodes to... Uh, be involved in. I can remember that because the name Henrik Hirsch means difficulty to me. Mm -hmm. But the detail is... I, I don't know. I don't know when John took over or um, whether he actually took over on episode three or not, I'm afraid. Uh, and um, the one that you've done the DVD commentary for um, was um, Planet of Giants with giant Ray Cusick sets and a big giant fly. So was that quite fun coming to see it again for on DVD all those years later? That was exceptional. Exceptional from the point of, point of view that the camera isn't seeing certain things. If you had a wide-angle view of the whole studio, you'd realise that the giant insects and all the giant um, elements in it were only kind of in a space of about five or six metres apart, and yet from camera angles 
you suddenly came across something that was um, not known because it was outside the frame of the camera. And I, th I think that worked very well. <laughs> Although there were some um, film, film inserts in that, the dead body was a film insert, I believe. Um, Gosh, yes, I remember that. Wasn't there some question about mysterious voices in that? Was that the mysterious voices? Ah, uh, no, that's the no. You ah, uh, you did the documentary about the sensorites and the talkback. Yes. All oh, right. Yeah. Oh, no, no. In in the Planet of Giants. In the Planet of Giants, they have they try and listen to a telephone yes, and the no, slow down right. voices. Yeah. Oh gosh, yes, that's right. But they come across. Uh, is it a massive spider or a massive fly? Or There's a giant fly, yeah. Which is just a jabberlike fly um, next to them, but it, because it's because the camera suddenly pans to it, it, it has a dramatic effect. And yet, it was only kind of a foot away from the actors. The actors had to play everything next to the giant fly and then, at a required time, suddenly come across it. And so, actually, on the floor, I'm sure it was quite laughable, all these Im immense um, uh, jabberlite uh, and uh, if, um, special effects, and etc. Gosh, I must have another drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the one, the one that you've sit talking of episodes you've seen recently, you recently saw the, the rediscovered Chumblies in Galaxy 4. Now, the Chumblies, now, who was that? Was that Douglas? That was Derek Martinez. Derek Martinez, yeah. The Chumblies were amazing. There was Angelo, somebody, and his Angelo wife. Muscat, yeah. And they were the operators of these tiny Chumblies, and they were both, they were midgets, I believe. As opposed to dwarves, they were uh, um, people who were... Um, Correctly proportioned, but much smaller. Oh, yes. Now, obviously, what is not seen is what was happening in rehearsal, and in rehearsal, with um, they were manoeuvring about on the floor in in roughly the same way as um, the Daleks used to manoeuvre about on the floor, sitting on little seats and um, trundling their feet along the studio floor, and they bumped into each other. Uh, the husband and wife would have uh, extraordinary arguments about whether they were in the right position or not. These high little voices would start arguing and the floor manager I have a feeling it was a lady and she got very angry with them and told them they had to be quiet because obviously you don't hear Chumblies um, speaking, especially in midget voices. Um... Are they still alive? They still alive? Uh, she is. Yeah, is she, she? Yes, she, she is. She remember. I don't think she liked her husband very much because he kept bumping in, trying to get in the, <laughs> in, in, the in the foreground rather than in the background. Um, and so that was quite exciting. Again, I, I, I was absolutely fascinated <laughs> seeing that particular episode that we that had been found in. Um, in the way that we had a plastic door hanging and how they got through the plastic door and the, the absolutely crass design of the whole thing with these wonderful little round um, 
Um, I'm being interviewed at the moment, but I'd love another beer. This is wonderful because um, thank you. Um, uh, very important. The the chump, the chumpies. They were. I, I don't know whose idea. Who who wrote that? A chap called William Ems, who never wrote any more. <laughs> they were extraordinary, extraordinary. But of course, I'm only seeing this from um, the gallery. Um, what your listeners have got to understand is that. As a backroom boy in the gallery, um, you're only seeing the output of what the cameras are showing you. And especially in rehearsals, that can be quite traumatic and quite funny because people are having arguments about where to go and the director is trying to control that all the time. And um, if there are altercations between artists and between uh, operators... Um, they can hold up proceedings. So therefore, my memory is simply that these arguments occurred because they were very difficult to manoeuvre. I presume very difficult if you're in a little kind of ball to, um, even if you're a little person, to um, go in the right direction. So going in the wrong direction doesn't help um, the camera script in any way um, because sometimes you go out or you bump into an actor or well I've, I've nearly exceeded my 20 minutes and there are some people in this same building one they sound about four and two they seem determined to and now Clive's <laughs> knocked over a bit of a glass of wine so this is gorilla podcast making in the highest order um, but I, I will need to throw because we haven't touched on even poor old Patrick Troughton so um, I'll, I'll just say the names of the ones you did and see if anything's stri- you did Patrick Troughton's first story Power of the Daleks directed by Christopher Barry sorry <laughs> there we go we've lost track of it I thought you were introducing Paul there <laughs> <laughs> having just, we've, we've got having just um, we're doing it on the fly. It's very, this is this is going to verisimilitude. Knocked over Paul Cole's red wine. <laughs> Sorry, Patrick Troughton's Patrick first story. You did Power of the Daleks. Did I really? Yeah. Can't remember anything about. Did, no, I can't remember anything. You, do, you also did so one, this one that was di- directed by Jerry Mill called The Faceless Ones that had Colin Gordon. Jerry Mill, I love Jerry Mill, but, but Jerry Mill. Um, Paddy Russell. Did Paddy Russell do anything? Paddy Russell did, yeah, did uh, a, a few Doctor uh, And Paddy, Paddy was, of course, around if you'd worked with Cartier. You'd have worked with Paddy when she was his PA as well. Yes, I would. And um, that's when Cartier was so extraordinary and they used to row. <laughs> Patrick Troughton stories. I'd worked with Patrick Troughton on a thing in Studio H, which... Um, had long since uh, been put into disuse when Doctor Who started on a thing called Cabin in the Clearing. It had um, Ewan Solon and um, Patrick Troughton in it, but that's of no interest to you at all. Um, however... No, it is. Um, it's got Ewan Solon and Patrick Troughton in it, for starters. <laughs> and uh, there, in Studio H, which was a small studio in Lime Grove, um, they actually had a pond... Well, it was supposed to be a big lake in Canada um, with a kayak in it and flaming arrows and tall cabin in the clearing. Actually, Studio H. Now, this is very, very important. 
because Studio H um, used to have um, thing with Cliff Mitchell and um, what was that called? T- tonight. 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 Um, it, it was uh, came out live from there, and later was used as the color familiarization studio. So when we all went from black and white to color, everybody who worked in television had to who who was involved in the pictorial sense in in the um, visual part technically, technically had to go on a color familiarization course. That was run by a, um, a, a design assistant in design department who himself was colorblind. <laughs> um, but he was very good at showing that the compatible black and white picture was acceptable. And this is what we had to do. We had to know that if there was too much red in the, in the picture, it would be too bright. If there was too much blue in the picture in black and white it would be too dark and if you I don't know when when did Doctor Who go colour well they shot it in 69 and broadcast in 70 oh did they well I stopped working on it then so but everybody who directed and worked on those Doctor Who's would have had to go on this ridiculous colour familiarisation course that nobody paid any attention to because if you were making it in colour, you made it in colour. And who the f- cared about those people who were watching it in black and white? Well, I've, this podcast is being done. It's actually impinging on a social situation. So I'm going to bring it to an end, uh, speaking to Clive, although I could talk to him all day. Well, I will, but you just won't hear it because there are other people here and we're having a good... Go away! It's Clive, it is Doctor Who's 50th anniversary. Um... Doctor Who fans are listening to this, and I've no doubt been fascinated by your stories. Um, what is your message to them? Um, as the man I, who suggested Sylvester McCoy for Doctor Who, by the way, we must add as an adjunct to that. Well, Sylvester McCoy I found from King Campbell's Roadshow, and he was an extraordinary man. Um, and when I suggested it to John Nathan Turner, um, John Nathan then... Uh, had also heard from another producer about Sylvester, and of course he was uh, at the demise of um, the series uh, that, all that time ago. Um, I think just keep up your fascination and obsession with a television programme that was, to be quite honest for me, one of many when I was a young man, and I then went on to other things which became slightly more important. Um, I don't want any fans for those, but um, <laughs> uh, I would like... Um, I, I, I think the fascination in what has gone before and the work put into it, that is what those aficionados of um, Doctor Who should know, the amount of work, the amount of people, the fun we had in the 60s and 70s, which was the most productive and innovative period of television. Clive Doig, thank you very much. Now then, 
Alongside Clive was a chum of his who worked on but one story and confessed to not remembering a thing about it. Well, as it turned out, he remembered several things. I'm in another pub. No, I'm in the same pub as as one I've done a previous interview in. Uh, I don't just live in pubs uh, with a with a gentleman uh, who worked on just one Doctor Who story, but a classic. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, my name's Paul Cole, and I was the floor assistant on what was it called? It was called the Web of Fear. Of course, I've never <laughs> forgotten it. Absolutely. Um, and uh, a floor assistant, in case anybody doesn't know. Um, uh, what you do is you go um, with, with a drama, you go to the last day of the outside rehearsal, so you see, um, you watch them run through it, and then in the studio you have to go and get the actors from the dressing room to the set to make sure that whilst they're going through the rehearsal day, when they want, expect an actor to be there, he is or she is there. So that's what the floor assistant does, and generally watches the whole thing um, and uh, helps the uh, floor manager. So that's what I was. I was a failed boy actor, and I'd got into the BBC, and I found myself uh, a floor assistant on Doctor Who, on this series of Doctor Who. And I had been to a, a drama school, a stage school called Corona Academy, also at that school was Fraser Hines. And in this particular episode, Fraser Hines was playing Jamie, with the kilt, Patrick Chardon was the doctor, and Deborah Watling was... Um, was she his assistant or yeah, whatever? Yeah, and, and, and her father, Jack Watling, a marvellous, I think a marvellous uh, British character actor, um, he was playing her father, I think. Well, yeah, you know, he was playing another character, but yes, he, oh, was, but, but yes, he was playing Professor at, Travers. At, at rehearsals, he used to say when he forgot his lines, oh, please help an old dad and daughter. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was directed by Douglas Canfield, who um, was again a lovely man, um, and he did yoga. And he, what he could do is he could put his uh, cross his legs over and put his arms down and lift himself off, off the floor, which he did um, with great regularity, which is quite disturbing <laughs> to the rest of us. But um, he could do that. And I think, and I'm not sure about this, was the producer Peter Bryant? Yeah, well, it was a funny crossover period because Peter Bryant and Innes Lloyd were, were sort of playing wow. tag pretty much throughout that whole And you year. know that Peter Bryant had played Jack in The Grove Family. Indeed, yeah. And... Uh, he used to live in Acton. I used to live in Acton when I was a boy. Peter Bryan used to live um, up a little road not far from me. Um, and um, we used to go and knock on his door, other people's doors as well, to say, have you got any old papers, any old newspapers? Um, and he um, always gave us newspapers and um, money. Um, so he was a very nice man. And uh, so I'd known him since... I, well, not known him, but I mean, I'd been aware of Peter Bryant um, since those days. And that's it, probably about the... Uh, some total of my entire uh, Doctor Who experience. Uh, oh, no, no the, the Yetis, they used to take their heads off and go outside for a smoke and they couldn't take the rest of the costumes off. Um, and I think that um, the computer inside the TARDIS, um, that had a man inside um, to turn it round, to, to revolve the, the thing. Collar, yeah. yeah. And I think Alan Benson um, was connected with it. And Alan Benson was Jewish. The man inside the computer was Jewish, and I remember um, <laughs> the lid was taken off by Alan Benson, who said to me, ah, this is whoever it was, the only Jewish computer in the business. Uh, those <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think that's all I can help you with. But you really. said you didn't remember anything. That was, <laughs> that was loads. <laughs> that was brilliant. Reams, thank you very much. That was <laughs> Yeah, there was co- yeah, it was yeah. cobwebs in the underground. That's right. Yeah, yes. the web. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, um, there's not much to talk about in cobwebs, actually. Um, I, I find when the conversation turns to cobwebs, it's time to go. Uh, <laughs> You've never been to a Doctor no. Who convention. Spring. <laughs> Yes, um, and as for charities, um, I'd like it all to go to the Cinema and Television Benevolent Fund, which takes care of very, very old people who worked in the business like myself who've fallen on hard times. Brilliant. Well, and Clive. Well, <laughs> Clive Doig, who doesn't believe in charities except no, for that one. That's the only one. Well, as you've probably gathered, ladies and gentlemen, this was this is a social occasion that is much better off without me shoving an iPhone in people's faces. So I say to Paul Cole, thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, gents. See, five minutes. Was it five minutes? Yeah. Um, as an addendum, we've, we've just remembered that John Levine was in the web of fear. Yes, John Levine was a very nice chap. I liked him. I used to talk to him because I was only the floor assistant, but he was only an extra. Um, and um, is he still with us? Yes. Okay. Yes, very much. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> very nice chap. And he then um, became an actor, didn't he? That that, that he, he got um, he got a regular part. Yes, yeah. had, had a part in it, and I thought he was very good in it as well. Yes. Give him my regards. I will. He won't remember me, you see. Thanks to Paul and to Clive. Paul's charity can be found at www.ctbf.co.uk. It's www. No, that was too many W's. You know the W. If you don't know the W bit yet, get off the internet. ctbf.co.uk. Do follow me on Twitter on at Toby Haydoke, which is T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. And you can check out my live dates and my blog and various other delights at www.tobyhaydoke.com. That's T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E dot com. Go on. And huge thanks to the writer Robert Ross. The violence of your people sickens us. Leave us now. Leave us to the sands of life. But you don't understand what you're doing could endanger... Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. War Against the Love. Must be one of the elder alarm, the second of the three. Get back, everyone! Open fire! No! Get back! It's happening again! Get out of here now! The war with the alarm is about to begin, unless we can put a stop to it. I want that creature cut open. I want to know what makes it tick. If that creature is killed, the entire alarm race will attack. If all of them go on the warpath at once, then there's no chance, you understand me? There won't be time for you to commit genocide. There won't be time for you to do anything except to die. 
subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. Well, if you hadn't already decided to buy that, uh, I should just let you know that uh, I'm in it. Yeah, so um, buy that one.